This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with your weekly update on the environment and your health. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to hear from one of the country's foremost scientists who has spent her professional career uncovering the links between environmental toxins and human health, particularly cancer. This week, we were proud to honor Dr. Deborah Davis with the Leadership Award from Americans for Responsible Technology for her long and distinguished career as one of America's leading epidemiologists. And we'll hear from Dr. Davis right after Patty gives us the headlines from the week. It's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, a great article came out in the Philadelphia Inquirer um, that is talking about a chemical that we are all becoming too familiar with. It was written by Barbara Laker and David Gambacorta, and it is called Field of Dread. Okay. Okay. As the clock inched toward 11.30 p.m., 65,838 people rose to their feet inside cavernous veteran stadium in philadelphia it was october 21st 1980 and game six of the world series between the philadelphia phillies and kansas city royals had reached the bottom of the ninth inning all that stood between the phillies and the franchise's first championship was just one strike on the mound was closer tug mcgraw tuggles to his friends and among the anxious faces in the Phillies' dugout was John Vukovic, a light-hitting infielder who was considered one of the team's fiercest competitors. Across the field, the Royals waited in anticipation, including Ken Brett, a former Philly who was once the youngest pitcher to appear in a World Series game, and Dan Quisenberry, a witty reliever. City officials had fantasized about such a moment nearly a decade earlier when the vet first opened. The stadium, built on 74 acres of marshland in South Philly, had been over budget, tainted by a bribery scandal, dogged by construction mishaps and delays. But it did boast a million-dollar state-of-the-art playing surface, AstroTurf. McGraw sneaked a fastball past Willie Wilson, a Royals outfielder. Strike three. Fans screamed and howled and cried, and Phillies players and coaches celebrated atop blades of artificial grass that had been pioneered by a Missouri chemical company called Monsanto. The company marketed its turf to professional sports teams, high schools, and colleges as a cheaper, more durable alternative to natural grass. Decades after the final out of the 1980 World Series was recorded, McGraw, Vukovic, Brett, and Quisenberry had all died from brain cancer. They weren't the only ones. In all, six former Phillies have reportedly been felled by glioblastoma, a particularly aggressive and deadly form of brain cancer, including former catcher Darren Dalton and former relief pitcher David West, who died in 2022. The rate of brain cancer among Phillies who played at the vet between 1971 and 2003 is about three times the average rate among adult men. Athletes had actually dreaded playing on the surface, which was notorious for causing serious knee and ankle injuries. Through eBay, the newspaper purchased four souvenir samples of the fake grass that had blanketed the stadium's field from 1977 to 1981. The team gave away the green keepsakes to thousands of fans in 1982 in four-by-four-inch sealed plastic bags labeled Official Turf of Champions. 
Tests run on two of the samples found the turf contained 16 different types of PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, so-called forever chemicals, which the EPA has said to cause adverse health effects that can devastate families. The lab findings come at a time of rising alarm across the United States about the pervasiveness of forever chemicals in an array of products, from turf and nonstick cookware to firefighting gear and food packaging. Few of the estimated 12,000 PFAS have been extensively studied. Since experts have only been aware since 2019 that PFAS was in artificial turf, no studies have yet been done to determine whether athletes' exposure could be linked to cancer. This is a frightening story because if it's happening to those, uh, you know, those players, what about all the young soccer players and baseball players who are playing on artificial turf across the country? Well, we actually do know about that. We had coach Amy Griffin on our show not too long ago who talked about all these young soccer players that have been diagnosed with cancers. Especially the goalies. Yeah, especially the goalies who do a lot of diving, you know, head first into the into the turf and picking up all that dust from these uh And pitchers are, these... you know, notoriously licking their fingers to get a better grip on the ball. Great. Mm. So so let's see. Although the dangers of drinking PFAS-contaminated water have been established, experts say that there isn't sufficient data to fully understand the potential risks of inhaling forever chemicals or getting them on the skin from repeated contact with playing surfaces. We don't have a good sense of the amount that was actually ingested or what amount of exposure is relevant to cancer risk, said Timothy Rebeck, an epidemiologist who researches the causes of cancer at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a professor of medical oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Another expert, Graham Peasley, a physicist at the University of Notre Dame who has spent years studying PFAS compounds, says, quote, once PFAS gets into a person's blood, they circulate through all the organs. We know that the liver is affected. We know that the kidneys are affected. We know the testicles are affected. But nobody's ever done the study to see if the brain is affected because glioblastoma is such a rare disease. Maybe not so rare anymore. You know, taking a toxic waste product and finding, you know, something to do with it where you can make money from it. You're talking about grinding up the tires. Grinding up these these toxic tires that are just, they're made from all these toxic chemicals and they're picking up all these chemicals throughout their lifetime from road surfaces. And then they're putting them on fields where our kids are playing and saying that this is the state of the art playing surface. It actually isn't. Players want natural grass. Yeah, the athletes really don't like playing on synthetic turf. They do not. Yeah. All right. What else you got? We have, this is from The Guardian, and this was written by Tom Perkins, and the title is, Plan to Incinerate Soil from Ohio Train Derailment is Horrifying, says Expert. Incinerate the soil. Yeah, that's what they're doing now. They're taking the soil from the East Palestine train wreck in Ohio, and they're actually sending it to a quote-unquote local incinerator to burn it. Good Lord. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. So contaminated soil from the site around the East Palestine train wreck in Ohio is being sent to a nearby incinerator with a history of clean air violations, raising fears that the chemicals being removed from the ground will be redistributed now across the region. 
The new plan is, quote, horrifying, said Kyla Bennett, a former Environmental Protection Agency official, now with a Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility nonprofit. She is one among a number of public health advocates and local residents who have slammed Norfolk Southern and state and federal officials over that decision. Quote, why on earth would you take this already dramatically overburdened community and ship this stuff a few miles away only to have it deposited right back where it came from, Mm -hmm. Bennett asked. Mm Incinerating the soil is especially risky because some of the contaminants that residents and independent chemical experts fear is in the waste, like dioxins and PFAS haven't been tested for by the EPA, and they do not incinerate easily or cannot be incinerated. A Norfolk Southern train carrying vinyl chloride used to produce PVC plastic derailed on the 3rd of February in the small industrial town of 4,700 people located at the edge of the Appalachian Hills in Ohio. As the fire threatened to ignite tankers full of the chemical days later, emergency responders, fearing a major explosion, conducted a controlled burn of the substance. This is a disaster. The derailing was a disaster. The leaking was a disaster. The controlled burn was a disaster. And the cleanup is a disaster. Yeah, so now they're going to burn the soil. And as Kyla Bennett said, by the way, Kyla Bennett has been our guest here on Green Street from Pier. What a mm-hmm. great organization they are. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to go up into the air and it's going to come down right on these people who've been already subjected to all kinds of contamination in their water and their air. This is another situation similar to the 9-11 situation Mm. where some people are being affected immediately with respiratory problems and skin rashes and those kinds of things and eye problems. But these chemicals are known carcinogens and it takes decades sometimes for these cancers to manifest themselves or to appear. So this this is a disaster. Yeah. But apparently this incinerator that is owned by Heritage Thermal Services has actually violated the Clean Air Act 200 times in four-year period. Well, that sounds like a great place to uh, to burn these, this soil. I don't know. I don't know. But it really raises questions about the disposal of toxic substances, which is what, you know, we're just dealing with all over the country right now. Do you wonder how people sleep at night? I mean, if you're the owner of the incinerator where they're going to burn this stuff and you know that it's going to create toxins that will cause cancer for people right well you know some of it's being to being sent to this incinerator and then what 1.5 million gallons of the wastewater is being injected into wells deep into the earth's crust near houston okay where they can where it can leak into groundwater okay and this is also an earthquake risk as we have talked about when we're talking about fracking and this deep this deep well injection Mm. But, you know, they've also sent it to Michigan. <laughs> send it you know, all over the place. They're sending it to Michigan, Hughes to Texas. You know, it's crazy. But how do you say not in my backyard? Give it to someone else. They got us fighting yeah. each other. Yeah. This is what Kyla Bennett said. How do you say not in my backyard? Take it somewhere else. Yeah. Well, yeah. where's that somewhere else? And who are the people in that somewhere else land? Good grief. Okay. 
So this last one is, is something that you've been involved in yep. through our organization, yep. ART, Americans for Responsible Technology. Yep. And this is a press release about it. It's um, And it's entitled, Community Groups Sue Los Angeles County Over New Wireless Antenna Ordinances. The groups say that recent changes eliminate community involvement, flout environmental laws, and ignore safety concerns. A coalition of community environmental groups staged a press event in East Los Angeles to explain their recently filed lawsuit against Los Angeles County. Led by the nonprofit organization Fiber First LA, the coalition includes Mothers of East LA, the Boyle Heights Community Partners, Children's Health Defense, and United Kituwa Band of Cherokee Indians and other groups. They contend that recent changes to the Los Angeles County Code adopted and approved by the LA County Board of Supervisors have taken away their right to be consulted about the placement of antennas in their communities, fragrantly violated important protections contained in California's Environmental Quality Act, and failed to include important safety measures designed to protect the life and property of, of Los Angelinos in a rapidly changing weather environment. Well, that's true in California. Holy talk about rapidly changing weather. Flooding, fires, <clears throat> mudslides, snow. Yeah. I mean, in and, Los Angeles. And in particular, in this situation, we're talking about high winds because, yeah. um, you know, they, they hang these heavy antennas and they're all their equipment on poles that were not designed for that. Right, and, and they and they can have co-location on those co poles. A few legally, antennas, yeah. They're legally allowed <clears throat> to put several yeah. antennas and several power supplies on the same poles. Yeah. Of course so, they're going to go down. So that's what this is about. This is about the fact that uh, up until this these new ordinances went through, communities had the opportunity to be notified when there was going to be an antenna, when an antenna application was made. There was going to be a public meeting. People could, could come and voice their opinion. And that's just been wiped away by the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. And this, so the community people are complaining and saying, you know. Okay, but in New York City... We've got a very similar situation yes, going on. Yes, we do. Where you are you are seeing the installation of these jumbo antennas. I mean, they're huge. And they're every couple of blocks. They're down on the Lower East Side now, and they're trying to uh, to install them on the Upper East Side, but but finding a tremendous amount of pushback by those wealthy, you know, homeowners in that area. People have a right to have some sort of say in how this stuff is deployed in their communities. That's what this is really about. For those of our listeners who are interested in this subject, there's going to be a webinar on March 22nd which is going to include some of the leading attorneys in the country who know about this. So if you're interested in what's happening in New York and Los Angeles and other places and you want to learn more, you're welcome to join the webinar. It's open to the public. There's no cost, but you do have to register. You can get more information at Americans for Responsible Technology, and I'm going to give you that web address. It's www.americans4rt. That's the number four rt.org americans4rt.org and there you'll find more information about the march 22nd webinar all right thanks patty you're welcome In our environmental work and on this show, Patty and I have the privilege of working with some of the sharpest minds in the country. 
And every once in a while, we meet up with someone who combines a razor-sharp mind and a long personal history of professional accomplishment with a great sense of humor and humility. This week, our nonprofit organization, Americans for Responsible Technology, is proud to present our Distinguished Leadership Award to our longtime friend and associate, Dr. Deborah Davis. For more than 40 years, Dever Davis has been on the front lines of the battle to protect public health from an array of environmental toxins, with a primary focus on cancer. Along the way, she's authored dozens of peer-reviewed studies, written several books, appeared on television and radio shows as an expert on a variety of environmental issues, and founded a nonprofit organization, the Environmental Health Trust. Deborah was the founding director of the Center for Environmental Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute and the founding director of the Board on Environmental Studies and Toxicology of the U.S. National Research Council at the National Academy of Sciences. She has degrees in physiological psychology and sociology, a master's degree in public health, and received her Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in epidemiology. No stranger to controversy, Deborah Davis has never been afraid to stand up for the integrity of her work, even when the industry has spent a lot of money to discredit her. She's a fierce fighter, but never lost her sense of humor or her optimistic outlook on life. Deborah Davis is an inspiration to all of us, and Patty and I are proud to call her our friend. Deborah grew up in the town of Denora in southwestern Pennsylvania. Well, I grew up in a town where the sun didn't shine for days at a time. And as a child, of course, like the children in Mexico City 20 years ago, I just assumed the sky was naturally brown and dark most, most of the time. In Denora, you could not be late because the mill whistles went off at regular intervals, 7 in the morning, 12 noon, uh, 4 in the afternoon, marking shifts for the workers. And the mills ran, of course, 24-7, because when you're running a still mill or a Coke oven or a zinc battery, all of which were running in Denora, they're never off. They're always on. Because if the oven stops, then it breaks. It has to maintain a heat, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 degrees, depending on what you're trying to produce. As a child, we were allowed, can't believe this, we were taken into the mill for a tour. And I remember walking by the ingots that had just been produced. These are these things about the size of a, a gigantic dining room table, I would guess four feet thick, 10 feet long, and they were red hot. And even standing perhaps 50 yards away from them, you could feel the heat, it was so intense. And these workers had to work with that all the time. And I only subsequently learned that when it came to working on the Coke ovens, which was the most dangerous work, and hauling the trash from the Coke ovens away, those were the jobs given to black men who moved up from the South because of the opportunities that were given to work in the mills as opposed to the Jim Crow South where black men had very few opportunities. The town of Denora, Pennsylvania, sits along the edge of the Monongahela River, or the Mon River as it's known, which flows north on its way to Pittsburgh, where it eventually becomes part of the Great Ohio River. The river still serves as a passageway for barges carrying coal from the mines in West Virginia, and although the giant steel mills that once dominated the town are gone, the memories linger, especially about the famous inversion. So most of the town worked in the mills, and there were coke ovens, 
nearby and steel mills, an old-fashioned blast furnace, a Bessemer converter. And um, because of that, we had a lot of pollution. But what Denora had that very few places in the world had at the time was a zinc battery. And these were designed to produce zinc. But one of the other things that they produced as a gas was fluoride a highly reactive fluoride gas. Now we all know that fluoride gas was in fact one of the main ingredients of poison gas in World War I and II. The river would generate a certain amount of water vapor, then the mills above it would generate pollution, and then in 1948, when I was a toddler, there was a massive inversion, like a lid of cold air sat over the whole valley and the fumes literally and i write about this in my book when smoke ran like water the fumes would come up from the coal-fired engine of the train that ran right through the mill as it brought in the coal and the coke and the limestone and the iron ore which are used to make steel and the smoke from the engine puff went up right horizontal to the horizon and came right back down. And I have eyewitnesses that told me about that. And so within five days, 20 people had dropped dead when normally nobody would drop dead in our small town of about 14,000. The deadly yellow fog had arrived just a few days before Halloween in 1948, enveloping the town of Denora and the nearby village of Webster in a thick, choking haze. As terrified residents began calling doctors and hospitals to report difficulty breathing, doctors carried lanterns and led the ambulances by foot through the smog-filled streets. Funeral homes ran out of caskets, and florists ran out of flowers. Hundreds of people flooded the hospitals, gasping for air, while hundreds more were advised to evacuate immediately. Even Walter Winchell did a movie special on it. You remember we used to get the news in the movies? This is Walter Winchell reporting from the death smog of Donora that has afflicted this small town. And Walter Winchell gave the re report, and suddenly the world was interested. The British Secret Service sent a delegation to Donora to investigate what had happened. And they wrote a report that warned that if something like this ever happened in London, there could be thousands of deaths. And guess what? That report sat in a drawer and it was only discovered after the 1952-53 London killer smog, which started in December, uh, I think 10th, where in fact, thousands of deaths occurred. And my postdoc, Michelle Bell, who is now full professor at Yale, in environmental sciences, and I did an analysis of the true toll of the London killer smog. Until we did our report, the number had been 3,000. We showed that the elevated death rate in London from the, that killer smog of 1952-53 remained elevated well into the spring, and that there were 12,000 excess deaths. And that number is now generally accepted in the public health community and appeared in the last episode of The Crown, last frame of the episode of The Crown called Act of God. And indeed, that is what the public officials attributed Denora to, an act of God. But there were those immediately who suspected correctly that this was no act of God. This was the result of the combination of these toxic fumes, and especially likely since Denora had the largest zinc mill in the world at the time. It's ironic that Denora, Pennsylvania, 
home to a very young girl who would go on to become one of the leading epidemiologists in the country, was itself the subject of the first large-scale epidemiological study of an environmental health disaster ever conducted in the United States. I remember vividly the day I was at college, and I was young when I started taking classes at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. I was still in high school, and I remember reading in a book and coming home, and I had this conversation with my mother. And I said, Mom, was there another town with the same name as ours? <laughs> she said, well, why are you asking? I said, well, you know, Donora sounds like it could be in Mexico or something. She said, uh, well, no, not that I know of. And I said, well, I read in a book at school that a town called Donora was dirty and polluted. And I wondered if that was our town and people got sick and died. And she said, well, you know, today they would call that pollution. But back then, it was just a living. And I tell that story in my book, When Smoke Ran Like Water, because I, I still can even remember the color of the windows and where we were sitting when she told me that. And I was shocked because pollution sounded like something dirty to be ashamed of. And I was a child and naive and thought Denor was really a cool place to grow up because you had these hills you could slide down all the time because nothing grew on them. Devra Davis, like most good scientists, has been a lifelong learner. Early on, she was fascinated with making sense out of numbers. While others saw rows or columns of meaningless data, Devra saw patterns. And I begin to take classes in biostatistics. Believe it or not, I loved statistics. And I loved the fact that you could make patterns out of what happened to people, birth, death, and sickness, and that you could see patterns uh, when you looked at the data. And back then, you know, we didn't have all this computer stuff. We had punch cards if you were lucky. And it took a lot of time uh, to calculate things. And so I was also interested in basic science and I really enjoyed biology, biochemistry, things like that. And, um, and I went to the University of Chicago for my doctorate. I had earned a master's in uh, sociology of science, and I was always interested in how science is and still remains an exquisitely social institution. Most people don't realize that there are trends and patterns in science, and there are fads in science. Nowhere is that more evident than in pharmaceuticals. How the, this drug is great until you find out that it's actually killing people with diabetes or making them gain twice their weight, like Zyprexa, which has recently been fingered as a terrible drug, although it's still being widely used. I went to the University of Chicago and it was like a candy land for me because there was just so much. And I did what I, will, I would never advise anybody to do, an interdisciplinary doctorate, where I took classes in biology, psychology, uh, philosophy of science and, and did a dissertation on the difference between religious and scientific knowledge and in the epistemology of science. And it is still important to understand that there are limits to science. And that in turn spurred me to do three postdocs. And one was in the history and philosophy of science with NSF support. And one was in toxicology and public health with support from a from an NIH group called World Man Fund. And the last was to get my MPH at Johns Hopkins, where I focused on 
molecular biochemistry of carcinogenesis and immunology. Armed with her many degrees and ready to contribute to the understanding of environmental links to cancer, Deborah Davis began a collaboration with Dr. Abraham Lilienfeld, generally regarded today as one of the world's top experts in cancer research and a pioneer in developing epidemiological methods for the study of chronic disease. Together, they published a paper suggesting that there were important factors other than smoking that could explain the rising rates of cancer. But just before its publication, Dr. Lilienfeld suddenly passed away. The paper was soon published, and the trouble began. I was naive about the politics of science, even though I had understood it as a you know, dissertation topic in a vague way. And so I soon ran a cropper of a fellow named Richard Dahl, because Richard Dahl was saying that there's no increase in cancer at all, except that due to smoking. And the work I did with Lilienfeld clearly showed that was not the case. And we published something together. I think if he had not died, we would have had a very different response. But what happened instead is that the chemical industry secretly supported Richard Dahl to develop attacks on my work. And I only learned about that after Dahl's death. And I personally felt deeply disappointed because I had never dreamed that this man who was identified with discovering that tobacco caused cancer would have taken $1,000 a day back in the 1980s from Monsanto and others in order to raise doubts about our work, which said, basically, if you look at all the cancer data and you take out all the cancers that could be due to screening, like breast and prostate, and you take out all the cancers that could be due to smoking, like lung and esophageal, that there is still an inexorable, undeniable increase in cancer, and therefore the environment and workplace are important causes of cancer. Undaunted by the efforts of industry to discredit her work, and in spite of occasional efforts to minimize her opportunities because she was a woman, Deborah Davis pressed on, along the way accumulating a large body of important scientific work, including her participation as part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which, along with Al Gore, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. But perhaps her greatest challenge came with the introduction in the early 2000s of the mobile phone. When my first grandchild was born, at nine months of age, he could find a phone that was turned off, crawl over to it in his diaper, turn it on, and start to play Brick Breaker. And I had been on the CDC Lead Prevention Advisory Committee in 1978. And so I knew quite a bit about neurotoxicology and how metals affect the brain of the developing child and that the brain of the developing child more than doubles in the first two years of life and it's so critical to protect the young brain so at first of course like any grandmother i thought oh this is a brilliant child which he is but then i began to look at what few publications i could find on cell phone radiation and the more i looked the more concerned i became and that is how i started this path of looking into the importance of reducing radiation to the young brain. And now I'm proud to say my grandson's doing quite well, but some of my grandchildren have not been able to escape the addictive properties of these devices, which can trigger dopamine, which is the same thing that drug, sex, rock and roll, cocaine, and cell phone radiation can trigger 
in the developing brain so that some children, and everybody knows this today, are truly addicted to these devices. In our paper that's coming out, we discuss the fact that children of parents that are regular users of cell phones and other devices experienced significant delays in speech acquisition. These children experience delays in speech acquisition. There are published studies on that that will be in our new paper. And there's even a new term called technoference to describe the interaction between the child and the parent when the parent is on a device and not really attending to the child. And we see it all the time with the nannies that are on their device talking while they're pushing a stroller. And we all know the importance of talking to infants and babies because that's how they learn to speak. And if you're not talking to the baby that you're taking care of, but you're holding a device in your hand while nursing, which is not uncommon nowadays, that child is going to have delays in speech and we don't know yet about what happens except that their brain is getting exposed when their skull is thinner it contains more fluid it is not a good idea and so i when i first got involved in this issue of cell phone radiation lewis lesson who has been working on it far longer than i have kind of warned me i said i thought i was then <clears throat> director of the Center for Environmental Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute and um, operating a pretty big operation. And he said, uh, you're biting off a little more than you might want to chew. Uh, and I said, oh, I think we'll be done in two years. Dr. Deborah Davis, American epidemiologist, author, founder and president of Environmental Health Trust and now recipient of the Distinguished Leadership Award from Americans for Responsible Technology. That's going to do it for our Green Street News show today. Special thanks, of course, to our dear friend Deborah Davis, our engineer Reggie Johnson, our news editor Alan Weiniger, our webmaster Allison Dunn, and our marketing director Patricia Bridges. If you enjoyed the show today, please tell your friends about Green Street News and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>